0: Well, the sun is shining today, but winter, oh, it's hanging on this year. Big snow out east and plenty of cold here in the Midwest. Kind of feels like the start of a new ice age. But what does it really take to start an ice age? We'll ask one paleoclimatologist what past climates tell us about the future. And a change in the way we look at hail could mean fewer severe thunderstorm mornings this year. We'll see why the National Weather Service is making changes in how you are warned about severe weather. Ice ages and ice from the sky today on Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Good day, Good day, Hi, everybody. I'm Minnesota Public Radio Chief Meteorologist Paul Huttner. My partner in weather crime today, fellow NPR and Career National Weather Service meteorologist Craig Edwards. And Craig, it seemed like March would never get here this year.
1: Boy, this just went on and on. When well, you look back, winter started like December 1st, the meteorological winter. And since that time, we've had snow and cold. So plenty of time for opportunities for recreational activities for people that like those outdoor activities. The winter cross-country skiing and the snowmobiling and the like.
0: And uh, finally, a big warm up in these parts. Long overdue and very welcome. And speaking of snow, as you mentioned, they're still digging out from the big one out east. Six inches to as much as 20 inches in some spots. Heaviest snow in Tennessee since 1968, and only the 12th time since records have been kept that Raleigh, North Carolina, has seen three inches of snow. It was the most snow in Philly in two years, and six to 12 inches fell in and around New York City and Long Island. The first time schools have been closed there in New York City in five years. Craig, this was a doozy.
1: Well, this is something, Paul. Yeah, my son picked the wrong time to make a a visit to Richmond, Virginia, where they had anywhere up towards a foot of snow in Montpelier, Virginia. So they had plenty of snow out there. Paul, the good thing was that it happened on a Sunday night, Monday morning. Most people were hunkered down. So not a lot of uh, news follow-up on that uh, event, but uh, certainly quite a storm on the East Coast.
0: And not so remarkable for the Northeast, but pretty remarkable to get snow that far south this time of the year as we head into early March. Now, NOAA, here's a story, set to get a boost from the stimulus package. How about that? NOAA will receive $830 million in funds as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. They'll use the funds, which are equivalent to about 20% of the budget last year for NOAA, for projects that protect life, property, and conserved and protect natural resources. Here's the deal. Here's how it breaks down 230 million for habitat restoration, navigation projects, vessel maintenance, and other activities. NOAA has a lot of big ships out there that do research. An additional 430 million will be dedicated for construction and repair of NOAA facilities, ships, and equipment, improvements for weather forecasting and satellite development. We know NOAA just lost a big satellite last week. And a total of $170 million for climate modeling activities, including new supercomputers and research into climate change. Craig, we could buy a few Dopplers with 830000000 bucks, million, couldn't we?
1: Well, that's what I'm thinking, Paul. They could really stand to update the uh, Doppler radars. And you talked about dual polarization. I hope that accelerates the deployment of dual polarization Doppler radars to better refine precipitation estimates and hail size.
0: Well, and in this part of the country, in this neck of the woods, the spring flood outlook uh, was issued last week. Southern Minnesota doesn't look too bad, the Minnesota, the Mississippi, but Craig, the Red River Valley, it looks like trouble this year. We could be talking about 35 feet uh, in Fargo.
1: Yeah, here we go again, Paul. Uh, The flood of 2006 was like in the top five uh, floods along the Red River. Now we're uh, three years removed from that. We've got another flood staring us in the face. Of course, the heavy uh, fall precipitation set that up for a very high threshold of reaching a major flood crest on the Red River as we see the snow melt and possibility of additional precipitation before the melt and then perhaps a delayed melt and heavy rain on top of that could be quite the catastrophe setting up in the Red River Valley this
0: spring. And it will really test that new flood protection they put in uh, since 1997 that worked really pretty well in 2006. Well, we've had a real winter, as you all know, uh, east of the Mississippi this year. And even though one cold snap, one snowstorm, one winter is weather, it has some people asking if the climate is getting cooler. Of course, we are still above average globally. 2008 was the ninth warmest year on record. But it got us wondering here at Jetstreaming, just what would it take to start a new ice age? David Anderson is the head of the Paleo Climate Group at NOAA's Climatic Data Center, and he joins us today from Asheville, North Carolina. David, welcome to Jetstreaming. Thank you. Hey, uh, we try to explain this a lot to our listeners on Jetstreaming. Some people get confused. As a paleoclimatologist, somebody who studies really long-term events, what's the difference between climate and weather, and when does weather become climate?
2: Yeah, that's a good starting place. Um, and uh, some people would say that that's a pretty fuzzy distinction, that weather really is the uh, the conditions we get uh, this afternoon from one day to the next, and climate uh, are the long-term averages, so the, the average temperature this summer or the average amount of snowfall that we're getting this winter. Um, in that context, the uh, average snowfall or the increase in snowfall that you describe would be a, a aspect of climate that's a little different this year.
0: And what do we know about what triggers ice ages?
2: Yeah, you know, you put your finger on one of the big puzzles in climate change. Uh, we still don't really know, despite three decades of intense uh, research. We know one thing for sure, that it's the slow changes in the Earth's orbit the tilt, which we call obliquity, the precession, um, the, the axis or the wobble of the Earth's axis, and the eccentricity. So these aspects of the Earth's orbit change slowly through time, and we know that they pace the ice ages.
0: All right, let's talk a little about these Milankovitch cycles. Uh, tell us a little bit about what they are, and do they give us any hints about when the next ice age might begin?
2: Uh, they, they do. So these, the melanchic cycles are these changes in the Earth's orbit, and they're slow. They're, they're cycles that uh, vary 20,000 years, 41,000 years, and on a 100,000-year cycle. So that's a long time compared to our frame of reference of a, of a decade or a human lifetime of, of 80 years or so. So these ice ages come and go uh, approximately every 100,000 years. The end of the last ice age was about 20,000 years ago. And we know that these changes are coinciding with these changes in the Earth's orbit.
1: Yeah, this is meteorologist Craig Edwards, and I was wondering, as I ponder this, and we, we talk about the context of global warming, we, the population we now have on the planet Earth uh, and it changes all the dynamics of what's going on. But you talked to good uh, information about the, the, the tilt of the Earth on its axis. But is this going to be something that we're going to see summertime cooling? And what were the type of things you would see as an ice age begins to project or show itself?
2: It's nice, first of all, to separate out these natural changes from the possibly human cause changes. And so if we just think first of the natural changes, we might, based on these orbital changes, we might be going into another ice age about 50,000 years from today. So that's a, a natural change. Now, superimposed on that, or separate from that, we have a possible human change, which is leading the Earth toward a warmer climate.
0: Well, interesting uh, interesting forecast, if you will, David, uh, 50,000 years or so to the next ice age. I guess that gives us all a little bit of time. You know, we've, we've studied, many of us, and heard about the last uh, ice age here and where the boundaries of the ice sheet were. And I've read that it was pretty abrupt on the southern end. Can you talk a little bit about how how thick the ice was over the Midwest and, and how abrupt was the edge of that ice sheet?
2: Let's paint a quick picture of what the glacial world looked like 20,000 years ago and then think about how that uh, changed abruptly at the end of the Ice Age. So 20,000 years ago, the polar ice caps were larger. There was a large ice cap over North America. The ice on Antarctica was... Uh, was thicker ice may have extended down covering the great lakes covering parts of minnesota uh that ice um up in hudson's bay may have been uh thousands of meters thick ice also extended down to cape cod and new york but in the tropics things weren't that different so you kind of had sandwiched not much change in the tropics maybe a couple degrees colder and big changes in the high latitudes and that made that um mid uh Mid-latitude region, a region of of intense contrast between the warmth to the south and the cold to the north, and then at the end of the ice age, um, that ended abruptly as that ice sheet melted.
1: Yeah, you talk about the land and the expansion of ice on the land. What is what effect does the oceans play in all this? So the conveyor belts and the trade winds and the and the patterns of the ocean currents. How how does that play into the next ice age fifty thousand years from now?
2: Yeah, that, uh, that's one of the big unknowns. And, and um, uh, the big puzzle of the ice ages is why these small orbital changes can get translated into large changes that produce ice sheets. The orbital changes were, were tiny, uh, a couple of percent or so. And the ocean circulation seems to have played a role. And the other factor that seems to have played a role is the changing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So 20,000 years ago, when, during the last ice age, the amount of carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere was about 30% less than today. And we think that contributed to the, to the glacial climate. The ocean circulation was also different. It was carrying less of that tropical warmth to higher latitudes and letting the high latitudes cool. So the answer to your question is, at the end of the ice age, the, the oceans began Suddenly, the conveyor circulation turned on. The oceans began suddenly to carry more heat from the tropical low latitudes toward the high northern latitudes and toward Antarctica.
0: What an amazing thermostat the Earth has. Now, you touched on this a little bit, the uh, notion of uh, CO2 changing during the last ice age and then maybe superimposing that with our our current potential for human-induced atmospheric chemistry changes. Can climate change as we know it today, the increasing of our greenhouse gases, potentially stave off an ice age?
2: Right. It's a good question. So the idea is we're, we're headed very slowly toward an ice age 50,000 years from now. And we've very rapidly, over 100 years, put CO2 into the atmosphere, so much CO2, that we could keep the Earth warm. And, uh, and prevent the next ice age. But the story's a little more complicated and the oceans play a role there. The oceans are taking up the carbon dioxide that, that we, the humans, are putting into the atmosphere and that carbon dioxide entering the oceans will essentially will eventually acidify the oceans, lower the pH. That will eventually lead to um, dissolving calcium carbonate and eventually buffer or reduce that increase in CO2. So on a really long time scale, the scenario or the progression looks something like this. We'll warm the Earth due to the increase in CO2 that we're putting in the atmosphere. That Mm -hmm. CO2 will enter the oceans and over thousands of years be absorbed or buffered so that eventually we return to a situation where there's little change from the initial conditions, so little change in CO2 once it's taken up by the oceans. And that whole process will occur in 10,000 years fast enough so that we'll kind of be almost ready and back where we were for the start of the next ice age 10,000 years from now. It's a complicated story.
0: Interesting stuff. It is indeed, and it's fascinating because uh, what you're describing to me sounds like a big thermostat that kind of keeps re-regulating itself, and it's It's great to talk about it today. David Anderson, thank you for giving us the cold hard facts on climate change and ice ages today.
2: You're welcome. It was great to talk to you and Craig today. And it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard.
0: Well, when a hard summer rain freezes, we call it hail. And this week, the National Weather Service announced that the criteria for issuing severe thunderstorm warnings based on hail size will change. The National Weather Service used to issue warnings based on three-quarter inch diameter hail. And this summer, the National Weather Service's central region will issue severe thunderstorms warnings based on one inch diameter or larger hail. The change is a welcome one to many meteorologists, including Craig and me. Kim Runk is with the National Weather Service and joins us today from Kansas City. Hi, Kim. Hi, nice to join you. Yeah, first of all, thank you. (laughs) And second of all, this change, you know, to Craig and I, we've been talking about this and advocating it for for quite some time. It makes a lot of sense to us. How does one-inch hail better reflect the threshold for severe and damaging thunderstorms?
3: Right. Well, first, let me thank you for your interest and support. We're trying to do something that makes sense for the general public, and uh, I'm certainly glad you appreciate that. Uh, To answer your question, scientific research increasingly indicates that uh, significant damage to real property uh, that is um, not things other than, you know, tender crops and that sort of thing, but uh, issues such as, uh, you know, cars or Uh, roofs and that sort of thing, it it doesn't really occur until hailstones reach at least one inch in diameter. Uh, As an example, one study by Texas Tech University Uh, and another that was sponsored by the insurance industry studied damage to various types of roofing materials, which is one of the most common sources of damage claims. Mm -hmm. And those studies concluded that hail just didn't produce substantive damage uh, to to any of those materials commonly used for roofing until the hailstones reached at least one inch in diameter. And that conclusion is certainly supported by damage reports from thousands of archived storm events. So we feel that that... What what may seem like a modest increase in the threshold may help us to uh, avoid lots of warnings that go out for marginal events that don't really pose a threat to property.
1: Yeah, Kim, this is Craig Edwards, and I wanted to ask you particularly about the Kansas project because uh, Dick Elder, my colleague down there uh, in Wichita, started this all up, and they said, let's do it experimentally. They started it in 2005. Why did it take till 2009 to make the determination that, indeed, one-inch criteria was the best the weather cervix could do with regard to warning that are valid and that they, we know we can have severe weather with one-inch hail, but this three-quarter-inch hail went on an additional three or four years. Why did it take so long to put this project in place for the central region?
3: Right. Well, I, I guess the, the simplest answer, Craig, is, as you know, we... There are four regions across the continental United States, and and I think ideally what they wanted to do was first uh, get at least a couple of years of experience with the demonstration project and, and get some, um, some customer surveys from the partners and, and customers that used that product and try to determine its validity and its value. Uh, and then for for the following year or two, what we were trying to do is uh, work toward a national implementation rather than one that was just region-wide. And that work is still ongoing. We're hopeful that uh, this project will actually build some momentum toward a national Im- implementation within the next year or two. But we did feel like after four years, we had sufficient Uh, support and interest by emergency managers and media partners, based on what occurred during the Kansas demonstration, that we could go ahead and roll it out in the central region where large hail is pretty prevalent, and so there's uh, perhaps a a stronger uh, potential for the public to get desensitized by the marginal storm events than in some other parts of the country where really large hail is actually less common anyhow.
0: Kim, we we work in the broadcasting end of meteorology, of course, uh, at Minnesota Public Radio, and we hear from our constituents, our listeners, our customers, if you will, uh, that they do get desensitized when we have too many warnings. So we're very interested in this. Did the Kansas experiment shed any light on how many fewer severe thunderstorm warnings might be issued with this new one-inch hail criteria?
3: Yeah, actually it did. Uh, We have... uh We have a verification system, a national verification uh, system that allows us to stratify events by hail size, and um, I don't have a numerical estimate, but preliminary studies doing some Comparisons between the three-quarter inch and one-inch threshold suggest we can expect about a 20 percent reduction in overall number of warnings issued across the region, Uh, probably 15 to 20 percent in some of the easternmost states uh, of our region, Michigan, Indiana, and perhaps as high as 30 or 35 percent in places like Kansas and Nebraska.
1: Yeah, this is Craig Edwards again. I'm curious about this whole process of one-inch diameter hail because a lot of times I saw the warnings that said this thunderstorm is capable of producing large hail and damaging winds. And it seemed like the large majority of the time, we we talk about the hail algorithm showing large hail, and we would get a three-quarter-inch hail report, but maybe wind gusts of 40 miles an hour. Did the experiment also show that you're likely more likely to get strong winds with one-inch hail because it seems like a lot of the three-quarter-inch hail reports were just three-quarter-inch hail and there wasn't much wind with these thunderstorms.
3: I don't know if there was really a direct correlation. Uh, certainly when you get really strong supercells, uh, there is often a correlation with uh, the potential for damaging winds. But as you know, being a meteorologist, the conditions that favor large hail production are sort of evaluated separately from those factors which generate damaging winds. So, And, and we're not changing the the criterion for severe thunderstorm winds, so for cases in which damage, damaging winds are expected to occur, a severe thunderstorm would still be issued regardless of the anticipated hail size, uh, but certainly there is a stronger potential in many cases uh, because of updraft strength and uh, you know uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the tilt of the elevated core and rotation and so forth that, uh, that large hail would also be accompanied by damaging winds in many cases.
0: Kim, we cover a pretty big footprint up here uh, with Minnesota Public Radio and our, our regional network. It's the equivalent of s- a six or seven National Weather Service offices. Do we know yet when uh, each individual office will switch, or is that a local office decision?
3: Part of our agreement with the National Weather Service Employees Organization for implementation region-wide was to allow for local offices to work with partners and customers to determine the best implementation date that that makes sense for them, permitting sufficient time for uh, outreach, education, preparedness of the local staff to transition and so forth. I do think that all of the Minnesota and Wisconsin offices plan to implement as of April 1st, but I would have to refer you to the meteorologist in charge or the warning coordination meteorologist of each local office to confirm that.
0: Well, Kim, we, we think this is a, a great decision, and uh, we're, we're very happy that you guys are going down this road. I think it will serve both of our customers well, which is the general public and keeping them aware and, and having them really take severe thunderstorm warnings seriously. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank
3: you for having me, and uh, let's hope that this uh, turns into uh, an initiative that better serves the public.
0: Won't be long till we hear that. In fact, today, uh, the first Wednesday of the month, Craig, I just heard the sirens blaring a little over an hour ago. It's that monthly test, and uh, you are familiar with that, of course, from the Weather Service. And I thought I'd highlight your old site today for our website of the week. It's uh, the National Weather Service Twin Cities, and they had a link there to the uh, one-inch hail discussion, the criteria, kind of an informational thing. Here's the website, uh, www.crh.noaa dot gov slash mpx Slash And, of course, you can always do a search for Twin Cities National Weather Service office. Craig, I thought that video was pretty well put together.
1: Yeah, that had every bit of information there that covered all the bases. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out because uh, it is going to be a learning curve. But I think overall it's going to well serve the public. And I'd like to really like to see that implementation of that dual polarization radar that's going to give better returns on the radar indicating what the hail size is. So we, we usually overestimate the hail size just based on Doppler.
0: Well, and you and I have talked about this many times over a uh, a cup of coffee or a stronger beverage that uh, we'd like to see them go to the one-inch hail criteria. I think it's a win-win for everybody. So hopefully we'll see that uh, 20% reduction in warnings and the warnings they do issue. Look out this year, folks, because these things are going to have one-inch hail in them. Uh, Listener feedback, we love to hear from our fellow weather geeks, I mean jet streaming listeners. So please send us your comments. Just go to minnesotapublicradio.org and click on Programs, and that's where you'll find the jet streaming link. The first comment today from Todd from Maple Grove, Minnesota. He says, Hi, folks. I've noticed that during winter, our cloud types are generally limited to cirrus, stratus, and nimbus, and that cumulus clouds in particular, or the so-called fair weather cumulus, are absent. My question is, what is the fair weather cumulus season in Minnesota? That is, during what months do we typically see this cloud type? Craig, you and I have discussed this uh, before. What do you think?
1: Well, I'm thinking, Paul, it's in the cool season, and then we get to transition to the summer, and we see these cold fronts come through in early June when we see this uh, cold air cumulus developed after you have some morning heating so you get this fair weather cumulus developing I think more likely in the uh, early summer of the first couple weeks of uh, June and then you get the more cumulonimbus type clouds the big thunderhead clouds as we get into the deeper in the summer and you get higher humidities.
0: Yeah and generally speaking I think the the bookends of that season we we start to see these fair weather cumulus pretty soon here maybe as we get into April on the early edge and they'll linger, you know, sometimes right into October if the conditions are right. And then we get into that that strata season. Thanks, Todd. Good, good question. Uh, here's a comment from the Updraft blog last week. We had the nice snowstorm here across the metro uh, last Thursday. And this one comes from Jen. I, I found this one interesting. It says, yay, snow. We get good snow so infrequently now that I'm taking tomorrow off to go play in it. Thank you very much for not approaching winter weather like the typical forecasters. If I hear another forecaster whine about the normal winter weather, I'll scream. I'm planning to go cross-country skiing at a local park, have tea at a small coffee shop, then snowshoe, make snow angels, sled and make snowmen, we never get too old to play in the snow. Craig, nice to know there's still a little kid in Jen.
1: Well, that's always good. You'll Get out there, enjoy the snow. We're going to be at the end of it, and I think, uh, as people say at the Weather Bureau, we don't have good quality snow in March. It's nice, heavy, wet snow, but uh, not much for recreation. But we got a couple more opportunities, Paul. I think a snow headed our way, so we'll have to keep an eye on it as we head through the next couple weeks of March.
0: We do. And very interesting weather patterns shaping up. And I see changes afoot. These warm air surges are getting pretty strong. In fact, uh, we could easily hit 50 in the Twin Cities tomorrow if it were not for the snow cover. Uh, And then you're right. Looks like a snowstorm potential anyway into early next week and then another warm up after that. So March is all over the weather map, as we say, in this part of the country. Good show today, Craig. Thank you very much. Sounds good, Paul. That wraps up this first edition of Jet Streaming for Meteorological Spring. Don't forget to spring forward with Daylight Saving Time this weekend and enjoy those later sunsets. Thanks for listening. Hey, tell a teacher about Jet Streaming, will you? For producers P. Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and sound guru Johnny Vince Evans, I'm Paul Huttner. Remember to keep an ear here to Jet Streaming and keep your weather eye on the sky.